Morning. For uh, those of you that were with us last week, we won't be revising efficacious grace. The false doctrine of efficacious grace is defined for us by the Roman Catholic Church and the seven-point sacrament system. We're only interested in saving grace. Amen? Amen. In the meantime, we're invited to the greatest wedding that has ever taken place on this planet. The wedding at Cana. Let's bow our heads. Heavenly Father, we thank you once again that we're found here in this place. And Lord, we thank you that you will take in to allow for it to drop from our, our minds into our hearts. Lord, that it would stimulate us, build us up and strengthen us in order that as we walk out of these doors, we might be just that little bit taller. We might just be that little bit bolder in our faith, Father, by that which you have revealed to us concerning your wonderful and mighty Son, our Lord and Saviour, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Once again, we're in the wonderful Gospel of John. And last time, we looked at the structure, how the Gospel is broken down into four key sections concerning Christ. We looked at chapter 1, verbal testimony, chapters 2 to 12, public ministry, chapters 13 to 17, private ministry, and 18 to the end, his death, resurrection, and post-resurrection appearances. And so here at the beginning of chapter 2, we discover Jesus has returned all the way back to his hometown of Nazareth. And in response to an invitation, he's attending, along with his mother and the five apostles, the wedding. Just a short distance away in a tiny village of Cana where perhaps just a few dozen people would have lived. And we've learned that this is a, a very intimate affair due to the low numbers living there. It would be fair to say that the whole village was in attendance. And what a celebration lasting many days. We could add that it's not difficult to, to see the picture of the marriage ceremony in heaven between Christ and his bride, the church. And we can assume that those known to the group living in Nazareth would have been invited to attend as well. And the year-long preparations have been made. The building of a house for the bride. The total cost borne by the groom. The bride's excitement as to what was to come, having been pledged through the engagement, the betrothal, leading to the final consummation, having waited patiently. And so Jesus begins his ministry with a friends and family miracle, transitioning him from the obscurity and private, um, relative privacy in Nazareth out into his public ministry. And by the way, a point to note is that Joseph, the Lord's father, isn't mentioned here. From this, we might assume, therefore, that Joseph was no longer alive. He must have died during the silent years leading up to this. We know that he was gone by the time that Jesus went to the cross, because in John 19, when he's hanging on the cross, he commits his mother Mary into the care of John the Apostle, because he, she's now a widow, which means then that Jesus, the fatherly role which his earthly father Joseph um, occupied. Jesus, as the oldest son, would have taken 
the role of, of, of caring for the whole family. And so we find ourselves here at the wedding. And as I said, put simply, it's the greatest occasion. No occasion like it. And the celebrations are in full swing. Everybody will be having a wonderful time. And then, right in the middle of this event, a year in the planning, there comes a huge predicament. Verse 3, the wine runs out. And trust me, that's a problem. This isn't a minor glitch or a hindrance, this is a big problem. The wine running out would have been considered a major disaster. This is a huge social embarrassment because if there was anything that the bridegroom had spent a year trying to prove, it was that he could take care of his bride, that he could manage family affairs in a competent manner. He had to build her a house, acquiring everything necessary. He had to demonstrate his ability to be able to take care of her for the rest of his life. Her father was handing her over to him. And this is a problem. Maybe he can't plan. Perhaps he's incompetent. And this is what all of you fathers out there who marry off your daughters fear. Is this fella going to be able to make a living? Is this man, substance? Has there been a, a, a misjudgment? And this problem falls into that category. It's the same issue. They ran out of wine at this, the greatest of all celebrations. And remember, life was tough. Life was hard and, and work was extreme. Survival in this world was difficult and a celebration like this would have brought so much relief. And so to run out of wine, and what about the wine? Well, it was, it was a staple drink in the ancient world. It was made from all kinds of fruit, mostly grapes, but other fruit as well. And just to remind you, wine and the, the juice of those fruits was subject to fermentation because there was no refrigeration at this time. So the fruit fermented with a small amount of yeast, produced alcohol, and, and that was a means of both purification and preservation. To quench your thirst with water was dangerous because water wasn't pure. And conversely, to quench your thirst with, with fermented wine was dangerous because you could get drunk, which was considered sinful. So you didn't want to be sick and you didn't want to sin. And therefore, the way they dealt with that was that they... They diluted the wine with water between 1 to 3 and 1 to 10. Uh, 10 parts water, 1 part wine, down to 3 parts water, 1 part wine. And they did that so that they could drink the water because it had a, a purifying effect and they could drink the wine and it, and it wouldn't make them drunk because it had been diluted. And having prepared this in the normal fashion, it had run out. And so now it's a problem. It's, it's a big problem, a big embarrassment. And the mother of Jesus, verse 3, said to him, they have no wine. And why her? Well, we don't know the answer to that. Maybe she was in charge of things. We don't know. We don't know that. But, but she was obviously aware of what was going on. And when the wine ran out, everybody knew. There's nothing left to drink. And remember, this is a several days event. And, and some have suggested she wanted him to do a miracle. And remember, he'd never done a miracle before. Why all of a sudden would she want him to do a miracle? He'd never done a miracle. He'd been baptised by John. Uh, 
She knew he was about to embark on his public ministry at the wedding if it hadn't been before. Perhaps she was thinking, okay, maybe this is it. Maybe the miracles begin here. And that's a possibility. But I think there's something more obvious than that. Think of it this way. Whenever Mary had had a problem, who do you think she went to for a solution at home? Jesus had never had a bad idea in his life. He'd never had a, a wrong solution in his entire life. He'd never took her took a one step in the wrong direction. He had the perfect solution to every dilemma. He had the perfect answer to every predicament. And everything that ever went wrong in the house, he knew why it went wrong, but how to make it right. Of course, he was the most wise, intelligent, resourceful person that had ever lived or ever will live on this earth. And he lived in that house with her. You know, some of us are severely challenged domestically. There are things that I can't do, problems I can't fix, not even close. But he knew how to solve every problem. More than that, he cared about people. He was compassionate, he was kind, he was loving, he could see the issues. Who else would she go to? Who else was there? Yes, there, were, there would have been others around, but who was equal to him? There was none. He had the perfect solution to every dilemma, the perfect answer to every question, the perfect solution to every problem. And she also knew that he cared, and he cared deeply about people because he loved as only God can love. So perhaps she's not necessarily asking for a miracle, she's just going to the one that she would always go to when there was a difficult predicament. And so she simply says to him, they have no wine. They have no wine. And she's learned as a widow to trust in his leadership and his wisdom. And by the way, the Roman Catholic Church teaches that you don't want to go to Jesus if you need something. You want to go to Mary to ask Jesus. And again, this whole idea is established that you, you go to Mary to plead with Jesus because Jesus can't resist Mary. And, and, and that doctrine comes from this passage. Can you believe that? And by the way, never mind that she was rebuked by him for asking. This is the only time in the New Testament that Mary ever made any request to Jesus. And he responded by saying, this doesn't concern you. And yet this is where the Catholic Church finds the origin of its Mariolatry, going to Mary to get things from, from Jesus. Verse 4, Mary says to him, they have no wine. Jesus says to her, woman, woman, not mother. Now, it's, it's not harsh to say woman. It's not overly insensitive, but it's not intimate either. It's not mother. It's courteous. And by the way, it's the same word that he used on the cross in John 19 when he said to her, woman, behold your son, and handed her over to John. He called a woman there as well. And why was that? Because he's telling her we no longer have the relationship we had to this point. Those times are past. She's no longer in a position to act as an authority in his life. She's no longer in a position to tell him what to do, to make suggestions to, to him. And this, of course, would have been 
a big change. Pretty confident everything that he ever asked of him, everything she ever needed of him, he gave her out of his love. But she could no longer demand anything from him. She played no, no role in his ministry. Focus on this for a moment. When he was 12 years old, he gave her a preview of this very moment. He was in the temple talking to the officials and said, I must be about my father's business. And this was the day his father's business started and his mother's business ended. From here on, he was saying, I'm no longer about your business. I must be about my father's business. I'm fully engaged in my father's business. Can we go further than that? Well, he never asked for input or suggestion from anybody. From anybody. In fact, when people gave him suggestions, he normally rebuked them, such as, get, get behind me, Satan. But here his rebuke is a bit milder. He says, what does that have to do with us? What does this problem have to do with us? And so here we witness a transition. The years of compliance, the years of submission, the years of obedience are over. He's finished with his mother's business and now he's doing his father's business. He says from here on, and as we'll see in John, I only do what the father tells me to do. I only do what the father wills that I do. I only do what I see the father doing. It's the father who gives me his word and it's what the father speaks that I do. And so he's distancing himself from the mother-son relationship which had existed for 30 years. And to an extent, calling a mother would have kept that relationship intact. But woman shows that she's now dealing not with her son, but with the son of God. What does that have to do with us? What an amazing statement. And by the way, the statement's made a couple of times in the Old Testament and also in Matthew 8, Mark 1 and Mark 5. It's, it's a very familiar Hebrew kind of expression, literally meaning, what's that to me and to you? What is it that concerns you and me together? Nothing. What do we have in common? Nothing. It's a, it's a separating statement. I'm completely free from you as to your desires, your wishes, your advice. And he seals this in Matthew 12. You'll no doubt recall the story. In verse 46, he's speaking to the crowd and, and his mother and his brothers were standing outside and they wanted to talk to him. Mary and his half-brothers. Someone said to him, Behold, your mother and your brothers are outside, standing out there seeking to speak to you. And my sister and my mother, the only relationship I have is with the people who do my father's will. That's what he's saying. What do we have in common? You have no role to play in my life. From this point on, all family relations are over. They're over. This is the opposite of what the Roman Catholic Church has said, that Mary has any function, any role at all to play in his life. He clearly dismisses that idea. Luke 11, 27, Jesus was speaking, and one of the women in the crowd raised her voice and said, Blessed is the womb which bore you and the breasts at which you nursed. He said, on the contrary, blessed are those who hear the word of God and obey it. 
On the contrary, he completely distances himself from Mary. He's assumed a higher position and she has no role to play. He's done doing his mother's business. He's now doing his father's business. And then he says this, my hour, my hour has not yet come. This is the first time we see this statement, but we're going to see it again. We're going to see it again in chapter 7, and we're going to see it again in chapter 8. We're going to see it in chapter 12 and chapter 13. My hour has not yet come. My, my hour has not yet come, or my hour has come. And this is a phrase which in its fullness looks at the cross, the hour of his death and resurrection. And what Jesus is saying is that, look, we don't have... We don't have anything in common because I'm now on a divine schedule which culminates in my death. And everything has to lead to that. Every event, every issue, every circumstance, it's leading to that final hour. So in using the the phrase, my hour has not yet come, he's announcing that the final hour of my death and resurrection is set by God and all events that lead up to that are determined by him. And you're outside of this divine timetable. And Mary bows out. His mother said to the servants, whatever he says to you, do it. And she just bows out. And then kind of ironically, he does what she asks him to do. He makes the point that it just so happens that this is on the divine timetable. Of course, she couldn't possibly have known that. And certainly, she didn't assume some great miracle would take place. She may have assumed that perhaps a natural solution. But it was on God's list of of things to be done there and then. And so we go from the predicament to the provision. And from here on, it all happens real fast. There were six stone water pots set there for the Jewish uh, purification ritual, containing 20 to 30 gallons each. What's that? 120 to 180 gallons in these stone pots? Remember, this isn't for drinking. They couldn't drink the water unless it was purified. It was for purification. And if you turn to Mark 7, verses 3 and 4, you'll read that, um, again, the Jews always purified everything. They washed their hands, they washed their, their utensils, they washed the plates, they washed the pots. They washed everything. But this isn't about cleanliness. This is about ritual purification rites and and, and ritual ceremonies that they developed and the water was necessary for that because lots of people were going to be there it was a custom and therefore they go through ceremonial washings before every single meal and again as we know there are plenty of meals that are multi-day experience so there was an abundance of water for everybody to wash ceremonially and Jesus said fill the pots with water So they brimmed them, which is exactly what he wanted. And why brim them? Well, if they weren't filled to the brim, somebody might have said he's added wine to the water. But if the water goes all the way to the brim, there'd be no room left. And that was the point. And so now you have the people, completely disinterested parties who are going to give testimony to the to this miracle, those who have no stake in the proceedings at all. They're not trying to prove anything about Jesus, they're simply servants. 
whoever they happened to be, people who were just serving there. Most likely they, they weren't even full-time servants. They may have been friends who, who were willing to do this. But they had no concern for Christ. Their disinterested parties about to give witness and testimony to this first miracle. And so they filled the pots with water and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, draw some out now and take it to the head waiter. The Arctriclinos, the head, the chief waiter. Take it to him. So they took it to him. And when the head waiter tasted the water, which had become wine, wow, how did that happen? Well, it actually happens in the white space between verses 7 and 8. They filled it to the brim, and all of a sudden they drew some out. They took it to the head waiter. They took it to him, and the head waiter tasted the water which had become wine. And let's just pause there for a second, because this is so understated. It, it's, it's, like, it's like in through the back door. Where's, where's the miracle? I mean, this is huge. This is massive. How do you, how do you get wine? Grapes. How do you get grapes? Vines. How do you get vines? Seeds. How do you get seeds? Other vines. How do you, how do you make the vine grow? Sunlight. Water, earth. How do you get the wine? You crush, you strain. But listen, there are no grapes. There are no vines. There are no seeds, no other seeds. No sunlight, no water, no, no earth, nothing. He's created wine out of nothing. I mean, at least he could have said, wine! pretty theatrical and everybody loves drama but no the head waiter tasted the water which had become wine there you've got these completely disinterested eyewitness in seeing washing up water changed into wine and by the way this would have been wine that bypassed the curse it had bypassed the earth the vine the grapes everything this was the best wine ever and if you've ever really tasted fine wine, this is way above that. This is Eden kind of wine. And it becomes apparent immediately because the headwater calls the bridegroom. And remember, the bridegroom is the guy who needs the news because he's responsible. And he says to him, every man serves the good wine first and the people have drunk freely. And then he serves the poorer wine, but you've kept the good wine until now. That's, as we know, that's, that's just obvious, isn't it? That's, it's, it's what we call axiomatic. Everybody does that. And you do that if, you, if you've uh, got your family or your friends over. If they, if they keep eating long enough, you end up giving them the leftovers. What's in the fridge? We call that a buffet. <laughs> you know what I mean? That's, uh, that's the way it goes. You prepare something, you give them what you've got, and if, if they're still hungry, uh, they start digging down into yesterday and the... Uh, the day before or last week. But here, nobody does this. Nobody keeps this quality of wine until the end. Nobody does that. And again, this is totally unexpected. An indifferent witness to the fact that this was indeed wine. Not just any wine, it was the best wine that had ever been consumed. Pure, delicious, like nothing ever had been tasted. 
and another and another wonderful witness of, of what our uh, Lord has in store for us in heaven uh, for us his bride nothing can compare to that which the Lord has in store for us in glory no comparison and so you have this testimony of a created miracle in the mouth of people who have no stake in trying to prove anything about Jesus it's amazing and so the party continues in earnest and it's in full bloom and verse 11 gives us the final word on this and the final word is the purpose we saw the party we saw the problem we saw the predicament and then we saw the provision and the purpose verse 11 what Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples what? did what? they believed in him so here we go now we're seeing the purpose of the gospel of John these things are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ the son of God and by believing have eternal life in his name that's the purpose and I'll be continually reminding you of this as we journey through that's the purpose he manifested his glory John 1 verse 14 we beheld his glory the glory of the only begotten of the father full of grace and truth John wrote that and John first began to behold that glory right here at the wedding of Cana because he was there and his eyes witnessed it and at this point let's just separate everyone into three simple groups can we do that and we all fall into one of these groups the world his disciples believed in him group one his followers Turn to, John 12, turn to John 12 and we'll close here. John 12, verse 37. John 12, 37. Though he had performed so many signs, so many miracles before them, yet they were not believing in him. That's group two. There were people who believed in him. There were people who did not believe in him. And both groups saw the same signs like you and I today. You've been exposed to the sign, this miracle sign confirmed by eyewitnesses who are objective. Remember, faith comes by the word of God. Romans 10, 17. Consequently, faith comes from hearing the message and the message is heard through the word about Christ. You believe or you don't believe and you've been exposed to far more than this. But there's a third group. Down to verse 42. Nevertheless, many even of the rulers believed in him. And of course the evidence is just massive and overwhelming and clear that he is indeed God. But many of the rulers believed in him, but because of the Pharisees, they were not confessing him for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue. They didn't want to pay the social price. Verse 43, bottom line, they love the approval of men rather than the approval of God. And all of us are in one of these groups. You believe or you don't believe. Or you believe and you're not willing to pay the social price to come to Christ. And that's tragic. To love the approval of men who can give you nothing eternal over the approval of God who gives you eternal life in his son is what's known as a fool's bargain. These things are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And by believing, 
have eternal life in his name. Let's bow our heads. Father, we thank you again for the privilege that we've had this morning to worship you and spend a little time with our Lord at a wedding, which seems to be such a minor event in a tiny village outside of a very small town in an obscure part of the world 2,000 years ago. And yet what happened there was the first great miracle, proving that Jesus was the Messiah, the one promised in the Old Testament. Your Son, the Lamb of God, the King of Israel, we thank you that we've been able to, to see and to hear the record and the testimony of those who were there, that they had the, the power to create, the power that only you possess. We believe. We believe. And in believing, you've given us eternal life. We pray for those in the world today who don't believe, who are fighting against the evidence. And I also pray for those who, who see the truth and acknowledge it as the truth, but will not come to Christ because they're not... They love the approval of men rather than your divine approval. Lord, would you help us all to see where we are because that's where we have to be. What a horrible decision they've made, especially when the greater judgment belongs to those who know and believe and will not come. Do a work in all of our hearts for those who believe. Fill us with joy and, and in believing. And those who, who don't believe, grant them faith. For those who, who believe but won't make a commitment, Lord, Cause them to embrace you, bound up in loving your son, that they may receive eternal life. Lord, be gracious. Pour out your, your mercy on many hearts, Lord. Father, just bless your children here this morning, that what they've received from you, Father, may build them up. Send them on their way, Lord, to, to serve you and, and to, to do your will. For we ask it in your wonderful and precious name. Amen.